welcome to a very special episode of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. I'm Ben Miller, writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. This week uh, is a special episode, so it's uh, just me and our guest, who I'll introduce in just a moment. Um, I think more so than in that any one book uh, has in gay culture, in lesbian and trans cultures, um, in uh, sort of queer femme cultures more broadly, the book The Well of Loneliness still has an enormous and outsized cultural impact. It's still the first point of reference, I think, uh, for so many people who are coming to terms with who they are, with understanding who they are. Um, and the more that we started looking into that book um, and into the person who wrote it, Radcliffe Hall, um, the more we started to realize that the story behind the book um, and behind Radcliffe Hall's life um, is not only very interesting in its own right, but also adds a lot of really important dynamics to conversations that we've had about um, primitivism, about queerness and race, about queerness and colonization, about the extremely good and normal um, sexual lives and habits of the British upper classes, about the ways in which uh, class has often kind of structured and limited queer radicals and their politics, and the way that whiteness has done the same. So in order to talk more about Radcliffe Hall and about this book, The Well of Loneliness, um, and all of the various uh, issues and questions and problems that are sort of imbricated in it and in its author, uh, I would like to bring in our uh, very special guest, Dr. Jana Funke, who is a senior lecturer in medical humanities at the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom. Her research focuses on modernist literature and culture, the history of sexuality, feminist studies and queer theory. And she, uh, it has just been announced that she will be one of the editors of a new critical edition of The Well of Loneliness, which is going to be published in 2023 by Oxford University Press. So uh, welcome, Jana. Thank you. And I just want to to say that we are recording this episode in COVID times over Zoom, and so we uh, beg for all of your uh, forgiveness for the audio quality we're doing uh, as well as we can here. Um, so there's a lot to say about Radcliffe Hall, and maybe the best place to begin is by uh, talking a little, for you to talk a little bit about um, kind of how you first came to Hall um, and to the book itself, and what that um, so sort of the, your, your sort of first encounters with, with Haller, with the book, and how it began to kind of both fascinate and trouble you. So like many other queer, lesbian, bi women, uh, I read The World of Loneliness when I was a teenager. So when I was 16 year old, years old, I was desperately reading anything to do with uh, queer, lesbian people. And I came across The Well of Loneliness, which is a lesbian classic, has been described as the lesbian Bible. We'll also talk about the fact that it has an important place within trans and non-binary history as well. But I read it when I was 16 um, and I promptly cut off all of my hair after reading it. So it had a huge impact on me. Um, and I was just fascinated with the book and finding out about this longer history um, of people that I could somewhat relate to and somewhat identify with. 
And then I was very interested in Rector Fall and Hall's own life. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many stories of people reading the book when they are teenagers and it's just affirming something within our identities. But then also the more I read about Hall and um, their life, I became really troubled by some of the politics and some of the deep flaws and limitations of the work as well. So that's where I'm at right now, really, in my reading of Hall, being really fascinated with what they did, but also um, really wanting to challenge and make even more visible all the deep flaws and limitations in the work. Yeah, it's rare, I think, that um, right-wing lies are true, but the uh, the lie that these queer books are, you know, sort of out to recruit young people, or rather the claim that these queer books are recruiting young people is actually somewhat true. Um, just to, before we um, get too far in, I want to foreground the fact that you're using they pronouns to describe a hall, which is, uh, you see various pronouns being used, but maybe if you wanted to talk a little bit about um, your sort of decision to do that or your um, adoption of those pronouns to to best reflect their kind of life and, and way of being in the world? So I use both she, her, and they, them pronouns. So I alternate um, between both. And um, if you want to be historically accurate, Hall herself used she, her pronouns. So even in the most personal writings, in letters, correspondences with lovers and friends, Hall used she, her pronouns. Um, but at the same time, if you read about Hall, you also get a sense that reading them as a cisgender woman is, um, is not good enough and doesn't accurately describe their identity and sense of self. So um, we know, for instance, that Hall was interested in ideas about reincarnation and possibly believed that they could have lived as a man in a previous life. And most importantly, we know that Hall, at some point in their 40s, started to identify with the sex sexological category of the sexual invert, which we can talk about more later. But basically, sexual inversion conflates what we nowadays describe as homosexual identity and trans or non-binary identity. And so again, just to signal the fact that we can and should read Hall's life and work as part of lesbian as well as trans or non-binary history, I use both she, her, and they, them pronouns because I think that mm -hmm. just opens up the life and the work to multiple readings. And to me, that's intellectually and politically the best approach. So let's get into that life a little bit. Um, who is Radcliffe Hall? Where uh, and into what situation or circumstances um, is she born? What, uh, how does her life uh, begin to take this kind of, um, take this sort of form uh, that it does both in terms of her identity and her experiences and, and also as a writer? So Rector Fall is born in August 1880 in Bournemouth, England. And Hall is assigned female at birth and they are given a very traditionally feminine name that they absolutely hate and despise and reject. So later on in 1912, at the age of 32, Hall adopts the name John or Johnny. And that's the name that they go by. So her friends and lovers call them John or Johnny. And Hall is born into an upper middle class family. Uh, and Hall inherits a lot of wealth, which becomes really important to her freedom. So she is financially independent. She has family money and wealth, which means that in contrast to other uh, people who were assigned female at birth, she has more freedom and more independence to decide what to do with her life. Um, Hall's uh, family is English on her father's side, and they even claim um, Charles II and Shakespeare as ancestors. 
But her mother is American and was married before, so she's a young divorcee. She's American, and that is considered a little bit vulgar by Hall's <laughs> English uh, family. And there are a lot of tensions in that marriage um, beyond that. So a very unhappy marriage. And the mother in particular rejects Hall, partly because of her gender nonconformity, partly because of the fact that Hall shows a lot of interest in women and girls, and the mother just absolutely rejects her child. And it's a very lonely um, and isolated childhood where she experiences uh, physical abuse, um, emotional abuse from the mother. And there are also suggestions that Hall experiences sexual abuse at the hands of her stepfather, so um, her mother's third husband. And Una Trubridge, Hall's lifelong partner, writes about that and Trubridge actually says that she deliberately doesn't want to talk about this in her published work because she's worried and this is a quote that psychoanalytic know-alls would say that John would have been a wife and a mother, but for the experience of sexual abuse. And I think Trubridge is onto something here that a lot of readers might have said that Hall turned queer just because she experienced sexual abuse and Trubridge is trying to repress that. But we still have the archival evidence to suggest that this would have been part of Hall's um, experience as a child. Um, Hall also doesn't receive much of an education, and that is something that troubles them throughout their lives. So there's some homeschooling, there's a brief period of study at King's College in London, and some study in um, Dresden in Germany, where she uh, studies German literature and, and the German language as well. But her education is very sporadic, and she's painfully aware of that, especially as she enters the kind of elitist intellectual circles later on in her life. Um, the English author Vera Britton actually says that Hall is um, the least educated author to ever make it into the National Portrait Gallery. So Hall's lack of education, <laughs> formal education, was noted by her contemporaries as well. Hall also struggled with um, her spelling. So uh, later biographers, including Sally Klein, um, speculate that Hall might have been dyslexic and she was very reliant mm. on her female partners to edit and correct some of her work before she could show it to editors. Is there a particular reason why uh, she didn't receive much of an education? Is that, um, would that have been unusual for someone of her kind of class position at that moment in England? Or did she receive sort of the amount of education that, that they should have received, uh, quote unquote, should have based on the sort of situation at the time? I honestly think the mother just didn't really care about the daughter. Um, I mean, Hall was financially independent, so she didn't need to make money. She never would have entered a profession to earn a living. Mm -hmm. And I think the mother just had no interest in her daughter's future or happiness or fulfillment. So that was just not a priority. So she was neglected and her lack of education or training was part of that. But also I think for someone who was assigned female at birth and who was part of that upper middle class upbringing, it just wasn't expected. And I mean, it's interesting in a way, because on the one hand, there's this kind of, as Trubridge wrote, this sort of horrible psychoanalytic, um, not that all psychoanalysis is horrible, but a kind of horrible use of psychoanalysis to try to devalue queer identities um, or ways of life by portraying them as um, parts of this kind of cycle of abuse, where they're sort of the result of abuse and then you know, then these people sort of go on to abuse and recruit your children too, just like they were recruited. Uh, and on the other hand, there is, I think, it comes up pretty often um, in some of these stories, especially at this period of time, where people's um, 
and as I understand, as I very completely understand it, especially in sort of queer women's history, um, that, and I don't only mean, or maybe even precisely mean abuse here, but that people's negative experiences in or with the family as conceived um, was often very important to them uh, in terms of their decision or sort of process of becoming um, something else or doing something else um, or living in another way. Yes, exactly. And I think Rector Fall and Truebridge, as that comment by Truebridge shows, were very aware of the different ways in which a life can be interpreted. Um, and something that we'll see when we talk about the well of loneliness is that Hall was very strategic in choosing a particular way of representing sexual and gender identity to try and achieve social change, which also meant trying to satisfy a heteronormative way of thinking about sexuality. And this is often where we get the worst version of Hall, where we really get Hall the bad gay is when she's trying to appease, trying to satisfy a heterosexual, heteronormative uh, imagination and um, an understanding of what sexuality should be. And this is where she makes very strategic choices. And listeners will remember, I think, in, in episodes, other episodes that we've done about the kind of early 20th century um, uh, sexual emancipation or sexual reform movements. I'm thinking especially of the episode on uh, Friedrich Ratzuweit, a very different person in many ways, but, but will, we'll, I think, have already seen some examples in this program of, um, you know, what happens when this kind of inversion model of homosexuality plus upper middle class socialization uh, plus, uh, you know, two dashes of race science um, gets blended together um, and can go very quickly, I think, or, or alternate between um, very liberationist um, and then also very both in their time and now uh, awful and terrifying uh, forms. So before we get too much further into Hall's biography, I think it would be interesting to know how she kind of came to writing um, as we kind of move towards this book, which I think should be at the center of our conversation, because it's by far, I think, the thing that she's the best uh, remembered for by far the thing that they're uh, most known for for having written. Um, so how does Hall begin to write? How does she kind of identify herself or find herself as a writer? So Hall comes to writing or serious writing at least very late in her life. So she becomes a novelist in the 1920s when she's in her 40s. Before then, in the 1910s, she starts to write and publish some poetry, but it's not really a serious endeavor. And again, we need to remember that she doesn't have to make money, so she can do whatever she wants. So she um, gets her inheritance at the age of 21. She moves uh, into her own house in Kensington, London, and she has a really good time. She's traveling, she's drinking, she's smoking. Um, she's, you know, having relationships and loads of sex with women. So she's just enjoying her life in her 20s and 30s. But then um, at the age of 27, she meets an older woman called Mabel Batten, who was an amateur leader singer and quite a famous well-known woman who was used to being adored and admired by men and women. And mm -hmm. Hall falls in love with Batten, Batten falls in love with Hall, and it's really Batten who has an influence on Hall and who shapes Hall and encourages Hall to take her writing more seriously. So Batten um, gets Hall to read and write, introduces her to feminist queer intellectual circles, also feminist and suffragette circles in London. And it's really through Batten that Hall in her 30s 
um, starts to get an education in politics, in creative writing, and also starts to see herself uh, as um, someone who has real potential as a writer. And it's through Batten's guidance that Hall starts to approach publishers and then eventually uh, becomes a novelist later on. But that relationship with Batten also ends in a very catastrophic way because Hall falls in love with Batten's younger cousin, Una Trubridge. So this happens in 1915. <laughs> and um, this is not an open relationship. So <laughs> Mabel Batten isn't happy that this is happening. Um, she doesn't consent to Hall having this relationship. And something quite tragic happens at the end where um, Mabel Batten is in ill health and they have a huge fight. Um, Batten has this jealous fit of rage. Um, John has a very bad temper and responds very badly. And then as a result of that catastrophic fight, Lady suffers a seizure, falls into a coma and dies 10 days later. And Hall never really gets over the guilt that she experiences, that her relationship with Batten's cousin led to her partner's death. Um, so this is the beginning of Hall's relationship with Truebridge, which will last throughout Hall's entire life. There will be other infidelities later on, but it is uh, the defining relationship for her. It lasts for 28 years. Um, and basically to get over her guilt or to try to get over her guilt, Hall then decides to embark on psychical spiritualist research. So Hall and Truebridge take part in all these seances with a very famous medium called Gladys Leonard, and they try to contact Mabel Batten um, in the spirit world. And of course, Mabel Batten responds and basically forgives John and says, it's fine and I want you two to be happy. <laughs> and, um, but she also warns Truebridge. So we actually have transcripts of these, these seances. Um, and it's really funny. There's one moment where Lady talks to Una Truebridge and says, you know, this is going to be really difficult. Like, don't think living with Ratcliffe Hall is going to be an easy life for you. She says, appreciate the magnitude of your task. It will be perfectly awful sometimes. And then Truebridge says, well, it's fine. I'll stick to it. And Truebridge did stick to it um, through very difficult times. And I mean, the, the, the worst time in their relationship was um, when Hall decided to publish The Will of Loneliness in 1928 and when the book was banned as obscene in Britain, which caused a huge scandal and real issues for both Hall and Truebridge. There's a lot there. Um, I want to go back to a couple things before we move on to the book. Um, first, you mentioned that uh, it's Mabel Betton, who I think you were also referring to as Lady a bit. Uh, that Was that a nickname? That was a nickname. So Mabel Betton was called Lady by her friends because she had that kind of persona. I but see. Una Truebridge was a real lady. So Truebridge remained married to her husband, Ernest Truebridge, who was a naval officer, and he was knighted. And as a result of that, Una Trubridge, because she was still married to him, did become a genuine lady. This is the L word Kensington, 1920. Um, the, just to go back again, though, you said that it was uh, Mabel Benton who introduced Radcliffe Hall to these different, you mentioned queer and feminist kind of social and intellectual circles. Um, can you talk a little bit maybe about who some of those uh, people were, if there are people that uh, people listen to the show might be familiar with, um, just to sort of understand how and where this kind of intellectual rooting uh, began to occur? Yes, absolutely. So 
Radcliffe Hall and Mabel Batten were friends with, or at least acquainted with, for instance, the suffragette composer Ethel Smythe. They attended speeches by Emmeline Pankhurst. They knew May Sinclair, Violet Hunt, um, and other women who were involved in the suffragette movement. Christopher St. John, for instance, was a lifelong friend of Radcliffe Hall's and they lived close together in the south of England as well. So really Hall developed lifelong friendships here um, within feminist queer circles, even though Hall themselves was quite ambivalent about some of the more militant suffragette politics. And this is something we see throughout Radcliffe Hall's life is that often Hall has the right political instincts, not always, but sometimes when it comes to feminist and queer politics, but then as soon as a political movement becomes uh, radical, revolutionary, achieves change that Hall finds quite frightening, Hall opts out and draws a line and has certain boundaries. Mm -hmm. So for instance, as soon as the suffragette movement became more militant, and as soon as it involved acts of civil disobedience, um, like the arson attacks, beating up police officers, going on hunger strikes, Hall said, you know, this is too much. And actually, in 1912, Hall writes an anonymous letter to the Pall Mall Gazette, which she signs a former suffragist. And she basically accuses the suffragists of not being patriotic, um, of putting the country in grave national danger, of adopting what she calls the methods of the miners, um, of conducting themselves like the working classes. So you can see here how Hall's upper middle class sensibility gets in the way of a feminist politics that she is to some extent at least in favor of, but she can't go as far as the suffragettes are going. And we'll see that throughout Hall's life, that she mm -hmm. withholds at a certain point when a political movement becomes uh, what she considers as too radical. As I think often happens, I mean, it's one of the things that really characterizes a lot of early 20th century queer movements is that the people who are often the most prominent in them are able to live the lives that they lead because of their class background are despite their class background because of this situation that their sexuality has brought them to um, kind of forced into a kind of radicalism uh, but then it's a radicalism that they can never quite extend further than their own bathroom mirror right like it, it you know they they're they're forced into this position of wanting to or needing to overturn everything, even though, you know, if they were born 50 years later or in a different social context, they might have not wanted to overturn anything. Yes, absolutely. And I think with Hall, we see that where her sexual and gender politics are revolutionary and radical to some extent, just because she doesn't really have a choice. And this is what she genuinely believes. And Hall throughout her life will stand by her convictions and is not afraid to articulate what she believes to be the right thing. And that's something that is to some extent quite admirable and makes her quite courageous and brave. And that's something we should acknowledge. But at the same time, as a white upper middle class woman who never has to think about racial politics, class politics, because they just don't affect her, she thinks they don't affect her um, in a negative sense, she will never have to um, take up these fights and she doesn't stretch or challenge herself to ever engage with politics in that sense. And actually, as we'll discuss, some of her writings are deeply racist and classist in ways that we need to make visible and also explore. Mm -hmm. So, Let's now get into The Well of Loneliness, the book itself. I suspect that many of our readers will have read it. 
um, but some maybe won't have or will have only heard of it. Um, so do you want to maybe begin by kind of summarizing the book uh, and maybe in so doing, talking a little bit about its position in um, many, I think more than any individual, my sense is that more than any individual gay male book, it has a sort of outsized importance uh, for an ongoing and outsized importance um, for a lot of queer women, um, at least in the English speaking world. So absolutely. I, I absolutely agree. And I think we can talk about the reasons why that is the case and why this book has taken on this status as the lesbian Bible and the lesbian classic. But to give you a little bit of a sense of um, the, the, the plot of what actually happens for people who haven't read it, um, The Will of Loneliness tells the story of a character called Stephen Gordon, um, a person who is assigned female at birth, but who's given a conventionally masculine name, Stephen, to reflect the fact that their father, Sir Philip, so again, we're talking about upper class people, wanted to have a son. <laughs> um, Stephen resembles their father physically uh, and their mother, Lady Anna, rejects what she thinks of as her daughter precisely because of this inborn masculinity, um, which the mother just can't deal with. So there are some autobiographical elements, although both Hall and True, which were adamant in saying this is not an autobiography, but some of the family dynamics, you can see how the, the, the rejection by the mother is mm -hmm. something that Hall had um, themselves experienced. So Stephen, in the mother's eyes, is, this is a quote, an outrage, a blemished, unworthy, maimed reproduction of uh, the father. And Stephen grows up with this internalized sense of shame um, as a gender non-conforming child and also as a child who's assigned female at birth and who begins to desire women and girls early on in life. So there's a lot of loneliness, discomfort in Stephen's own body, um, and also, again, a struggle with the parental dynamics where there's just no love um, coming from the mother figure in particular. Mm -hmm. So Hall says that Stephen experiences the loneliness of what is described as the no man's land of sex. So this is how Hall describes Stephen's experience. And again, uh, the book, as I said, has often been read as a lesbian book, but at the same time, Jay Prosser, for instance, has um, very convincingly argued that we also should read the book, and Stephen in particular, as a character um, who has a central place within trans history. So I'm open to both of those readings, and I think we should look at The Well of Loneliness as a lesbian book and as a book that deals with um, trans identity and experience mm -hmm. as well. So this is Stephen's childhood. And then in a sense, the whole book charts the way in which Stephen comes to term with their identity. So there's one very important moment in the book after Sir Philip, the father has died, where Stephen sneaks into the father's study and uh, opens up this locked bookcase and discovers sexological writings, which the father had, mm. had read. And there are all these annotations in the margins where you can see how the father was trying to figure out his child's identity. And then Stephen reads the books and discovers themselves within sexology. And in particular, the sexological term of the sexual invert becomes the label that Stephen uses to make sense of themselves. And Hall herself in, the 90, in, in her 40s, so later on in life, would adopt that term to speak about their own identity. So again, there are some autobiographical elements here. 
Um, Stephen then also serves um, at the front during World War I as part of a community of other female inverts. So again, proving their value uh, for the nation and the state in a very patriotic sense. And then Stephen becomes a writer and uses their creative talents to express and articulate what Hall called the plight of the sexual invert. So writing in order to change the way society thinks about sexual inverts. And the most controversial bit of the book for many people is the ending, which has uh, often been described as absolutely miserable and uh, sad, <laughs> because basically Stephen, and this is again a way I think where Hall is trying to present Stephen as noble and self-sacrificing. So Stephen at the end falls in love with a woman called Mary, and this is really Stephen's great love. But because Stephen recognizes that they cannot give Mary a happy, socially acceptable life, and they can't give her children, and they can't marry, and Mary's life would be so difficult by Stephen's side, Stephen decides in this very noble way to give up um, her love to Mary, and more than that, finds a nice uh, cisgendered man, heterosexual man, that Mary can um, enter into a marital relationship with and have children. And Laura Doan has written in very interesting ways about the kind of eugenic dimensions here as well, that Stephen recognizes that they might not be able to give Mary children, but if they pair Mary up with another mm. eugenically fit man, then this can be heterosexual reproduction, which Stephen aids in, in that sense. And for reasons that you can understand, uh, loads of readers have just said that the ending is horrible and why can't these two people be together? And why does Hall have to go along with this very negative, miserable ending? But it's part of Hall's politics and uh, part of Hall's attempt to make people feel sorry for sexual inverts. What is your, so your reading of that ending is that it's Hall's attempt to kind of wrap what is otherwise a potentially revolutionary story in something that's more appealing to a mainstream audience? Yes, I think depicting the invert as someone who recognizes their own limitations and who is so noble and so self-sacrificing that they will give up their great love in order to, in a sense, protect a heteronormative um, lifestyle um, is something that is not very threatening. So while the book, to some extent, calls for what we might nowadays call gay marriage, and it says that sexual inverts should have the rights to live with their partners, at the same time, the end of the novel acknowledges that that is not yet possible and signals to a heteronormative society that you don't have to be scared. You know, we're not asking for too much. Don't worry. <laughs> the women who end up with an invert can still go back to heterosexual men. Um, so it's, it is an ending that is quite accommodationist and not very threatening, I think, to, to a heteronormative society. And is this, is this why... I mean, there are many reasons um, that I think we'll start to get into a little bit in a little bit more detail in a couple minutes that that we might consider Hull to be bad, quote unquote. But is this the kind of primary reason why, um, or is this the sort of main reason why some queer female readers find Hull or the book to be bad? That in a way it's, uh, on the one hand, it's the kind of defining text of, if there is a defining text of Anglo- sphere lesbianism it's the well of loneliness and yet in a way it's a book about the negation of that yes absolutely i think that is something that has frustrated readers and in a sense you can see that hall is also quite hypocritical because of course 
Hall was living with women and had many sexual and romantic relationships. And Hall didn't herself live up to this image of the self-defeatist, self-sacrificing invert. So you do wonder why couldn't she present a more affirmative, um, livable model of sexual inversion in the book. But again, I think we do need to read The Well of Loneliness as a, as a text that was written in a very strategic way where Hall was trying to pander to and to satisfy uh, a heteronormative readership um, because she felt that was the best way of um, gaining some sense of sympathy or empathy for sexual inverts. And the irony is, of course, that the book was still deemed obscene, even though it is not revolutionary or radical in what it asks for, in what it depicts, um, and also in its depiction of sexuality. I mean, if you read the book and you think this is going to be this obscene book on lesbian desire and lesbian relationships, there's nothing explicit in the book. The most explicit scene is, um, I think Hall writes that one night um, they were not divided, referring to Stephen and her female partner. And then there's another passage where it says that Stephen kisses her partner on the lips as a lover. But that is as far as it goes. This is not the lesbian Lady Chatterley's lover. You know, there's nothing explicit in this book. And still, it was deemed obscene, which is really surprising. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that, because you mentioned that the book is written in some sense as an intentional, in this very intentional way um, to try to sort of appeal to or... Um, um, I want to use a German word now, verhandlosen, but to just kind of to to make more harmless um, this kind of uh, queer female uh, inversion, um, and yet that doesn't work, right? Because the book is immediately um, declared obscene, and you know, and and it becomes a, a major scandal, if I understand it correctly. Yes, exactly. And that is really interesting is that even the hall is trying so hard not to be too frightening and not to be too bold or daring. Nevertheless, there are some people who take it upon themselves to start a whole campaign against the book. In particular, uh, James Douglas, who was the editor of the Sunday Express, really starts this targeted campaign. And he writes this very vicious article about the book where he's basically saying this book is written to corrupt and deprave young English people and it will turn people queer and it will um, corrupt the morals of this country. Um, and it's a totally outrageous article if you read mm -hmm. it, where he famously um, writes that he would rather give a healthy boy or a healthy girl a file of Prusik acid than this novel. This is the famous line <laughs> everyone cites from this article <laughs> where he says, poison kills the body, but moral poison kills the soul. And so it's really Douglas and the campaign that he starts that lead to the censorship trial. So otherwise, actually, before Douglas wrote this article, the reviews were neutral or affirmative or positive. And for instance, the sexologist Havelock Ellis endorsed the book and wrote a commentary where he said this is really important and significant. And it wasn't seen as scandalous by other readers, but following um, James Douglas's campaign, it was put on trial and it was banned as obscene in the UK. So, mm -hmm. uh, and I think for that reason, also this book, which otherwise might have actually just passed without much attention into kind of, it might have faded away because it wasn't the first or only lesbian text that had ever been written. And um, had it not been for the censorship 
uh, trial, which was so scandalous, which uh, caused such notoriety, we might not be talking about the well of loneliness as a lesbian viral. We might not even be reading it. Um, and I think that censorship mm -hmm. trial, ironically, I mean, we know censorship usually doesn't work and just um, often, you know, causes more tension. Um, and I think in this case, that is what happened, that the censorship trial actually made this even more famous and made more and more people aware of the book. So what is um, the sort of model of the invert, at least as Hall uh, understands it or presents it? I mean, it's a term that comes up in a lot of different um, sexological or kind of sexual emancipation uh, movements, um, and I think often means quite different things. Um, how does Hall understand it? How does Hall use it? Um, and what does this model kind of look like? for them and, and in the book? So Hall was intimately familiar with a wide range of sexological writings. And as you just said, often even the same term is defined in a lot of different ways. And Hall also negotiates that those writings in her own way in quite unorthodox ways. Um, basically, the term sexual inversion was coined by English sexologist Havelock Ellis, who I just mentioned, who knew Reclifor, they exchanged letters, he endorsed the book, mm -hmm. and also John Eddington Simmons, and it was coined in 1897, so several decades before The Well of Loneliness. And for Hall, in particular, sexual inversion is a term that conflates, as I said earlier, what we nowadays call homosexual and trans identity. So the so-called female sexual invert is a person who is assigned female at birth, but has some inborn masculine elements or traits um, that also explain why they desire women. So it's basically a model of gender nonconformity that is mobilized to explain same-sex attraction. And mm -hmm. it's ultimately quite a binary way of thinking about gender. So assuming that we can divide a person's identity into a feminine and a masculine part. And it's also quite a heterosexual model in the sense that it's masculinity that causes attraction to women. So it's quite a limited mm -hmm. model and you might say not a very queer model. Another problem with uh, the term is in the way Hall uses is is that she's particularly interested in what is called congenital sexual inversion. Congenital meaning inborn. So basically an early articulation of the born this way argument that is still with us today and we can trace that back. One of the origins is sexological writings and the will of loneliness um, in a sense communicates that model to a far wider audience um, because sexological texts weren't as widely read as, as fiction. So um, we know that the born this way argument is uh, still quite popular and it's quite successful in some branches of mainstream LGBTQ politics. But again, it's quite popular because it's not the most threatening way or the most revolutionary or radical way of thinking about queer identity. Um, so for Hall, for instance, um, there's a sense of arguing that sexual inversion is inborn is a way of saying that it's not a choice and no one would ever choose to be queer or trans. So it again appeases or speaks to a straight imagination that would never be able to imagine being queer or trans as a choice. And it's also a way of reassuring readers that um, you know, there's only a small minority of queer and trans people who are born this way. You know, sexual inverts are a small minority group and no one else could possibly ever experience queer desires. So it's a very limiting framework Mm -hmm. um, where um, it's, again, speaking to a straight and cisgendered imagination. So it's not particularly revolutionary or radical. 
And again, this is something that readers have picked up on more recently, but even at the time, for instance, the writer Winifred Holtby reviewed the book and said, actually, this model is quite limiting. There's other ways of thinking about sexuality and gender, and this is not the only or the best way of thinking about it. So this has troubled readers from the very beginning as well, the limitations of that model. That's a, that's a, it's fascinating. There were responses to it um, in that way that early, and it also seems like it really differs very strongly from other sexological, or at least as Hull understood it, differs rather strongly from versions of this kind of sexological conflation of gender and sexuality um, that may be, and I mean, not that, not that Magnus Hirschfeld was an uncomplicatedly good um, person or uh, theorist. Uh, I actually sort of think we should do an, an episode about him uh, at some point. Um, but you know, at least this kind of um, steps in between Zwischenstufen model has is much more, it is in many ways much queerer potentially, or, or can be kind of uh, thought in a much in a much queerer way. It seems like Hall was committed to the most, maybe the most restrictive possible version uh, or a sort of concept of the invert where really it was something that you were sort of trapped in. Um, and it was, it was really a way of, um, a, a way of trying to, and maybe especially related to female desire, which at this moment, uh, psychoanalysis is trying to, in some way, define out of existence, um, to, to just sort of assign it masculine, um, and therefore to get rid of the idea that it, that it exists or to get rid of the threat that it poses. Exactly. So this is the model that she cho chooses to foreground in the world of loneliness. Um, readers and critics have also argued, and I think they're right, that there are other models of sexuality floating around in the book. And sometimes even the model of sexual inversion is complicated in ways. But certainly the idea of born this way, an inborn sense of masculinity that is stable and static and unchanging is what Hall foregrounds for her straight cisgender readership, which is, I think, the main audience for the book. But at the same time, there are also moments where Hall is articulating maybe a queerer articulation of, of sexuality and gender identity. But I think that is buried beneath this more dominant model in the book. Mm -hmm. So this straight cisgender audience that comes to the, the Well of Loneliness, um, there is this kind of outraged media reaction. What is the effect that that reaction has on the lives of uh, Hall and of Truebridge? Um, and, and also just briefly, you mentioned that Truebridge was still married to her husband this whole time. Um, if you could maybe also, as you're sort of talking about their lives in the wake of the publication of this book, get a little bit into uh, how that worked, um, you know, where she was living, um, you know, if you could just speak a little bit more to that as well, because um, gossip is gay and good, and we like it on this show. So Truebridge lived with Hall. They moved in together. They lived together. Truebridge also had a daughter called Anna. Um, her nickname was Cabo Cubby. But um, that daughter sometimes appeared in their lives, but was also kind of delegated <laughs> to other people. So Truebridge mm -hmm. very much, once she met and fell in love with Hall, once Mabel Batten had died, dedicated her entire life to Hall and they lived together. Um, and that was just the relationship. And the trial, um, the obscenity trial, did cause a lot of disruptions for both of them. And I think that's quite important to acknowledge as well. While people 
earlier biographers have said, oh, there's nothing really at stake for Raquel Falls. She was out anyway. She was living openly. She had money. This was not really, that didn't mean anything to her. She did take significant risks. I mean, it's worth saying that in the 1920s, Hall was very much established as a very successful middle-brow author who had won several literary prizes. And Hall was also, I mean, people knew that she was in a relationship with Trubridge. It was an open secret, but it wasn't affirmed. Mm-hmm. No one had labeled that, them as a couple. And I think writing The Will of Loneliness was taking uh, a serious risk. And Hall knew that, and she won Trubridge, and both of them as a couple made that decision that this was the right thing to do. And that was a bold and courageous act. And it did have serious implications. So for instance, Hall had to sell one of her London houses to get some money for her defense and to live. It affected her literary career. And it also affected her own sense of self. I mean, Hall never really um, had to struggle with her social standing and her social status. And I think the enormous public backlash did make her feel, maybe for the first time in her life, that she was genuinely vulnerable towards public opinion. And this is not what she had expected. So it did have serious consequences. I mean, Trubridge and Hall continued to live a very comfortable life. But at the same time, this was a genuine risk and it did cause genuine problems for both of them. Yeah, and then and the way in which kind of access to a certain social position, um, again, for someone with Hall's class background is so kind of psychologically important. Um, and I think it's interesting for people to, to, to realize that there was a, or, or to think about the ways in which there was a kind of you know, you could be queer um, and have access to a certain kind of social position and everyone that you knew could know that. But as soon as anything, we see this in, in, in a lot of these kind of big scandals of the early 20th century, whether it be the Wild case or the Eulenberg case in Germany or this, where um, it's like as, as soon as you kind of bring that world into the public eye, you're not only the victim of the kind of media scandal and of the public talking about you, but you're also actually a danger uh, to all of these people who have been your friends. And so you get kind of cast out in this way. Um, where are they living at this point? Um, and where do they kind of live out their lives? Do they, stay in, uh, do they stay in this house in Kensington? Or do they, like many other English and American queers before them, find someplace more continental? So they have several houses and they move around quite a lot. Um, so Life is tough. <laughs> yes. I mean, they mainly settle in Rye. Um, so not that far from London, but not in London. So they live in Rye and they are close to other queer, lesbian, bi women like Vita Sekler-West, Christopher St. John. So they have a kind of community there. They also spend some time in Italy um, where they have friends and ties and they also start to get involved with Italian fascism in the 1930s. And um, they also spend some time in Paris and they are part of the famous lesbian circles there. So they're friends with Natalie Clifford Barney. And actually in The Well of Loneliness, there is a character called Valerie Seymour, who is a version who's based on Natalie Clifford Barney. And she's quite an important voice in the novel because she articulates a different kind of queer politics. And she kind of pushes against the model of sexual inversion. So Hall does give some space in the novel to alternative voices. But again, as I said earlier, the model of the inborn sexual invert does win out in that particular book. But she had access to different ways of thinking. And she was part of quite diverse 
networks and friendship circles, including the, the Parisian crowd that involved Juna Barnes and Gertrude Stein and Natalie Clifford-Barney and others. Let's get into um, the fascism part that you mentioned there. Um, how did they become involved in Italian fascism? Um, and was this in any way related to some of the troubling uh, content in both the novel and in some of Hull's others writing having to do with race? Absolutely. So when I say they became involved in Italian fashion, they didn't play an active role in the movement, but they were friends with the Italian writer Gabriele D'Annunzio, who was associated with fascism and whose writings influenced Mussolini directly. And they spent a lot of time with him in Italy and Trubridge loved him and said that he was the only man she would never refuse sexually. So it went quite far for both of them. So there was that flirtation with Italian fascism. There's also anti-Semitism in Hall's writings. So um, in 1939, and this is a quote, Hall writes, Jews, yes, I'm beginning to be really afraid of them not of the one or two really dear Jewish friends that I have in England, no, but of Jews as a whole. I believe they hate us and want to bring about a European war and then a world revolution in order to destroy us utterly. So this is her writing in 1939. When she talks about her Jewish friends in England, she probably means Mickey Jacobs, who was one of Hall's uh, closest lesbian Jewish friends, who also took it upon herself to educate Hall. And in the 1940s, Hall did begin to condemn what she then called the wholesale slaughter of the Jews. But again, I mean, Hall was not uh, a person who would ever think seriously about racism and classism. And she um, very much stuck with her views, even as friends were trying to get her to think differently. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about racism in The Well of Loneliness and some of Hall's other writings, I think it's anti-Black racism that is um, most explicit or overt. Um, and this is something that some critics have talked about, but really it's something that often goes unnoticed. And I think it's part of the reason, uh, part of the, the reason for this is that people don't necessarily want to acknowledge how fundamental anti-Black racism is to the model of sexual inversion that Hall presents in that novel. So Jean Walton has written a really excellent chapter on this, but beyond that, there's not that much good scholarship on Hall's engagement with race. Um, but in The Well of Loneliness, Hall, like some other white queer modernist writers, um, Gertrude Stein, HD, mm -hmm. appropriates blackness to really articulate her own sexual politics. So there's an important scene in The Well of Loneliness that takes place in Paris where two black American singers give a concert for a group of white sexual inverts that includes Stephen Gordon. And this scene was actually based on a real concert that Hall had organized in London in 1927, where Hall and Trubridge had invited um, Taylor Gordon and John Rosamond Johnson to perform for them and for their other white middle and upper class friends in their London home in Chelsea. And Gordon and Johnson were invited to sing Black Spirituals specifically. And Gordon and Johnson were internationally famous. They were touring Europe at the time. They were part of the Harlem Renaissance movement as well. Mm -hmm. And Hall then writes about that scene in The Well of Loneliness, where she draws on that evening. And she's using it in particular ways to further her own white sexual politics in The Well of Loneliness. So what she does in The Will of Loneliness is that she suggests that sexual inversion is to some extent analogous to blackness. And analogy functions in interesting ways here. So it's a connection via comparison 
but it mm -hmm. also maintains a clear separation. So Hall suggests basically that sexual inverts are in some ways like black people, they are similar to black people, but she will never be able to imagine the sexual invert themselves as anything other than white. So it's uh, creating a connection via analogy, but also keeping mm -hmm. uh, a very strong distance. So in The Well of Loneliness, the two black singers are described in racist and animalistic terms. Um, and Hall also, for instance, says that one of the two brothers, the singers are, are brothers, is lighter skinned than um, the other brother. And that for Hall makes him more evolved, more civilized. And Hall also praises that character for knowing his so-called proper place in society, not pretending to be white, not, not demanding to be treated in the same way as white people. So it's a deeply racist description of these two singers. Mm -hmm. And Hall uses them, Hall uses blackness um, in a sense to further her own white sexual project. So what is achieved in that scene of the novel is that Stephen has access to a biologized model of kinship that Hall is mobilizing for sexual inverts. So Hall very much presents blackness as a biological category and argues that sexual inverts also share biological difference. So it's by um, watching these two singers perform that Stephen can realize that, oh, I also share biological difference with other sexual inverts. And that offers Hall a model of kinship that becomes central to her sexual politics. But again, it's a deeply racist understanding of blackness um, in biological terms. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, also watching the two brothers sing and perform, um, Stephen has access to a kind of model of liberation and expression that through creative expression, you can achieve liberation and freedom for what Hall considers her people, which are, is a group of sexual inverts. Um, and so again, I mean, Hall is very much appropriating blackness for a white sexual project without any interest or real engagement with, with politics around race or racism at the time. Right, and it seems also, I mean, there are many varieties of this um, of this kind of these kind of queer primitivisms. Um, you've written a lot about them. I've continued to cite things that you've written about them and things that I'm writing about them. Um, and there are flavors of of this that, to some extent, engage more with um, or attempt to approach a politics of alliance. Um, and it seems as though Hall was you know, not only totally disinterested in that, but actually engaging um, in a sort of fascist and, and eugenic and anti-Semitic politics. Yes, absolutely. And I do think it's time that we go beyond this apologetic argument that, oh, in the context of her time, this is not that bad because other people are doing the same. I don't think that is good enough. or I don't think that works because Hall had access to um, you know, a wide range of intellectual political circles and there's no reason why she couldn't have engaged with racial politics um, in more progressive ways. And this is a deliberate choice that... that, that right. and, and, and many people did in these circles at this time, um, you know, in ways that I think are still worthy of critique. Um, but, you know, the, the, the engagement with race of someone like Magnus Hirschfeld, um, who... Uh, was making some of these same kind of appropriative moves in order to sort of ground his project, but also wrote a book that was explicitly against racism, a book which can be critiqued along with all of his other work for its racial blind spots, but he was somebody who was 
um, at least intentionally kind of addressing himself at this problem as opposed to just ignoring it or um, sort of passing it over uh, or what have you. Yes. Um, and uh, you know we've 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 spoken before on the show about about the way in which that oh well it was just the time argument um, is usually um, a very thin shield for people who think that uh, it was actually correct then and would still be correct now, uh, especially when uh, when we're speaking about kind of the the colonial crimes of some of the big uh, European empires. Um, so other than the Well of Loneliness. Um, what are some of Hall's kind of other written works um, and are any of them worth discussing in the context of uh, some of the themes that we've uh, been bringing up in this conversation? So when we think about racism, I think this is something that we should look at all of Hall's published works and think about how racist thinking structures a depiction of gender and sexuality. And I think scholarship hasn't done that yet and we need to engage with that more. There's one short story that um, was unpublished during Hall's lifetime, but I decided to publish it in a volume that I did a few years ago that is so explicit and overt in its racism that it can actually help illuminate some of the other racist strands of thinking. Uh, and that short story is called The Career of Mark Anthony Briggs, which was one of the earliest pieces Hall wrote in 1914 when Lady was still alive. And Actually, um, Hall sent it to the publisher, very famous publisher, William Heinemann, who loved the, the short story and thought it was brilliant and excellent and fantastic. But this short story is um, absolutely explicit in its anti-black racist politics. Um, it uh, talks about a young black man who grows up in Washington, D.C., who studies to become a lawyer. Um, and really, Mark Anthony which is his name, has internalized anti-black racist stereotypes and very much longs to be white. So he refuses to marry a black woman. He falls in love with a white client of his who rejects his sexual advances. And in that moment of rejection at the very end of the story, Mark Anthony lapses into what is described in extremely racist terms as a primitive, bestial, animalistic state where he physically and possibly sexually attacks the white woman, but stops himself before raping or killing her. And the story then ends by him realizing, and this is a quote, you were born black and black you have always remained. You have murdered your own ideal, which is the ideal of, of whiteness and white masculinity. And he then takes a gun from his desk and steps out into the night and the suggestion is that he will commit suicide. And so this story uh, suggests that um, for Hall, you know, the best solution to what she sees as the problem the, of um, black emancipation and liberation is a black man basically committing suicide. So black death as a solution that Hall proposes here. Um, and of course, the story also reinforces racist stereotypes of the black man as a physical or sexual danger to white women. And we know how that mm -hmm. has been mobilized and continues to be mobilized to justify violence against the murders of black men. So it's a deeply racist text um, that is so overt in its racist politics that I think we need to read it and then also look at Hall's other writings because I think it can illuminate things that might otherwise go unnoticed and that have gone unnoticed. And this is something she writes in 1914, 1915. Again, then we have the racism, the world of loneliness. And then even in Truebridge's biography of Radcliffe Hall, which is written in the 1940s and 50s and published in the 1960s, again, there are loads of racist passages. So we can see really there's no change, no evolution in mm -hmm. Hall's or Truebridge's thinking around race. Yeah, and there's also some analogy in a way between, it's like the vision of anything that doesn't 
her vision of anything that does not conform to this very specific kind of English upper classness um, is that there's something about it that is fascinating and that is dangerous and that ultimately has to either be eliminated or eliminate itself. I mean, in a way, it's not so different. I mean, it's different. It's different in many ways in how it relates to broader questions of justice. But in terms of the structural function in the narrative, it's not so different from uh, what she makes Stephen do in, or what they make Stephen do in The Well of Loneliness, where it's like the, the sort of present threat has to be done away with, um, even though in this other sense, she's also kind of living it. Yes, absolutely. And there is a real kind of disconnect between the in many ways very radical life that Hall chose to live with her various uh, female partners, while also in some of her published works, at least, presenting a much more conservative uh, model of sexuality and sexual and gender identity. And this is something that can be quite frustrating uh, as a scholar of, of Radcliffe Hall's work. And I would say that in some of her other writings, um, novels and short stories that she maybe felt wouldn't reach such a wide audience, Hall is more daring and is bolder in her depiction of sexual mm. gender, or at least queerer. So we know that Hall had access to all these different ways of thinking about sexuality and gender. And for instance, in a novel like Saturday um, Life, which is published in 1925, she explores ideas about reincarnation and the idea that a person might have different gender and sexual identities across different lifetimes and sexuality and gender might not be stable and static and might not just simply be inborn. So I find those texts much more interesting, much more radical, but um, sadly in the world of loneliness, which is the book that we all read and it's the book that we first um, come across when we encounter Hall, that queer potential is not mobilized for political reasons. Right. So how does Hall, um, what is the sort of rest of Hall's life like after the well of loneliness? Um, you know, this notoriety happens. None of her other texts, I think, become as well-known uh, or even nearly as well-known um, as the well of loneliness. How does she kind of live out her life with, with Truebridge? So Hall continues to write and she publishes a collection of short stories and a few other novels before she dies uh, in 1943. And Hall, as I said, suffers and struggles with the fallout and is very disenchanted um, after the censorship trial. But Hall also turns that around in a sense and very much adopts the persona of the martyr Mm -hmm. So um, Hall really much um, chooses to believe that all the suffering of the trial will ultimately allow her people, other sexual inverts, to gain recognition and to gain liberation. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, you know, she did receive a lot of letters from people, hundreds, thousands of letters from people who said, well, this book is really meaningful to us, even though it was banned in the UK, it was a bestseller. And so many people read it and Hall received very touching letters where people said, you know, I finally found myself. I realized there are other people like me out there. So she received letters from other queer and trans people. Mm -hmm. But also straight people were writing to her and saying, oh, no, this really helped me to understand what you and your kind experience. And mm -hmm. so in that sense, I mean, she was justified in saying, even though the book was banned in the UK, it did some good. But I think her embrace of the martyr persona also became quite extreme. So um, the next novel she wrote was called The Master of the House. It was published in 1932, so four years later. And it is about a modern Christ figure 
but her identification with the suffering of Christ while she was writing that book went so far that she even developed stigmata. So her hands started to bleed and she had to like write the manuscript when her hands were bandaged. And <laughs> she really went for it. Um, it's also this, worth saying that- It reminds Paul, me of that great story in the, in the Judith Brown book about lesbian nuns the, where the about Sister Benedetta was a you know, 15th century lesbian nun who was having all of these visions and you know talking to Jesus and then it turns out she was actually having sex with all the other nuns and drawing on her own stigmata with saffron. And I actually just found out yesterday Paul Verhoeven is adapting that book as a film. Wow. Which is yeah, you know, injected directly into my veins. But anyway, sorry, continue. I just, no, I mean I, I was couldn't just going resist to say that. that. Paul had converted to Catholicism in 1912. Truewood was also a Catholic. Maybe Batten had been a Catholic. So I think her Catholic faith and that focus on suffering and redemption and the martyr really became very generative for Hall in the 30s. And she really went with that persona. Well, Catholicism um, is so queer. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. Velvet but at the same and time. blood and it's all you need. <laughs> I mean, she loved it. And uh, also, I think there were some caricatures of her depicting her as Jesus on the cross. So she became the sapphic Jesus in the 1930s and to some extent really embraced that model as well. But at the same time, as she was presenting herself as uh, the suffering martyr, she also embarked on her final great love affair with another woman, a, a younger Russian woman called Yevgenia Sulin. And this is again a kind of moment where it's quite interesting to see how Hall is outwardly presenting this image of the Catholic martyr when really, again, cheating on Truebridge, um, who was very unhappy about this relationship and who was really worried about losing Hall to this younger woman. And Hall at the same time also very much coercing Suline into this relationship. So when you read her letters um, to Suline, they are quite difficult to read actually. And um, I think we need to acknowledge the abusive and coercive dimensions of, um, of that relationship as well. I just recently read um, Carmen Maria Machado's book, In the Dream House, which is about abuse mm -hmm. and coercion in relationships between people who are assigned female at birth. And Machado, I think, makes the very good point that um, lesbian scholars, bi scholars have often been very lenient when it comes to abuse within in relationships between women or between people who were assigned female at birth. And I think Hall's relationship with Celine is a good example where we need to think about the coercive dimensions, where this was a younger woman who didn't have much money, who was reliant on Hall for her visa and for her right to stay in France and then later on England. And Hall really exploited that and became strangely obsessed with taking Celine's virginity. So it's quite sexist in the way she's framing female sexuality. Um, and she's telling her what to do, sending her these lists of what to wear, what to drink, what to eat, who to see. Um, very demanding. Mm -hmm. And what's also interesting is that just after writing The Well of Loneliness, which is all about the inborn invert and you're born this way and nothing else, all of a sudden in her letters, Hall is very capable of mobilizing a model of bisexuality <laughs> to convince Suleen oh. that she, she should be able to sleep with Hall, even though she might have desired men before. But actually, a lot of yeah. people are naturally bisexual. So if she wants to sleep with Hall, that's totally fine. And I mean, the letters are quite insidious in many ways. <laughs> That's kind of incredible. <laughs> All of a sudden, it's like whatever's convenient, you know, then, then here, this, here this thing kind of comes in. Exactly. Um, so what is, the, what is the end of Hall's life? How does Hall die? Um, 
and uh, what sort of happens with her legacy and, and Truebridge, does Truebridge become then the um, sort of self-conscious carrier on uh, of Hall's written legacy and kind of legacy as the sapphic Jesus, which is, I think, my new title for this episode? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, Truebridge really continues to shape that public image of Hall. So Hall dies quite miserably of cancer, um, and Truebridge basically becomes the um, executor, and she holds all the power. And many biographers have actually said that it's really difficult, almost impossible, to disentangle Truebridge's version or model of Hall from another model of Hall that we might want to get at. So Truebridge really takes control. She destroys some of Hall's writings. She also destroys all of the letters that Celine had written to Hall. Um, so really, the things that she doesn't like, she gets rid of. And um, she makes those decisions to really shape Hall's image. Uh, and she also does that in writing the first biography of Radcliffe Hall, which is um, very uncritical and, again, really reinforces this image of Hall as a martyr and as someone who was, you know, suffering for the cause of the invert. So Truebridge, while sometimes people have read her as the woman behind Radcliffe Hall, Truebridge holds a lot of power in shaping the way that we still see Radcliffe Hall today. And how then does Hall, I mean, is there ever a moment when Hall kind of loses her status um, as this kind of important lesbian martyr figure, um, or does it kind of continue uninterrupted uh, right up through the present day? The Well of Loneliness remains an important text throughout the 20th and early 21st century, and it's actually really interesting to think about the reception history. So um, in the 1940s, 1950s, um, Vera Britton writes a whole book about the Well of Loneliness and its um, place and significance within the history of censorship in Britain. So that's a moment where that is looked at. Um, the Lady Chatterley trial is another moment where people think about the Well of Loneliness just because of that shared history of censorship between these two books and debates about obscenity. Within lesbian feminism, it remains relevant. And then more recently, I think, as I said earlier, readings of the book as part of trans non-binary history have become um, more important. So uh, there's also a whole tradition of um, pulp fiction editions of the book, and it's always fun to look at those covers. So actually, I think there's a whole project looking at the reception of the world of loneliness and what it has meant to subsequent generations of lesbian, queer, bisexual, trans, non-binary readers. And there's a whole project in that. But the book remains its relevance, even though, of course, it speaks to people in slightly different ways in different historical moments. Mm -hmm. I think the fact of Hall as a martyr is something that people have increasingly challenged and people see through the persona of that. It's something that is very easy to mock and make fun of. Um, and it has become part of Hall's, I think, cultural image, but in a way that people also see as a facade and as something that was very strategically constructed. Mm -hmm. And something that she was able to kind of, yeah, something that she sort of occupied in a very self-conscious and in a very self-aware way. Maybe to close then, um, your own kind of involvement with Hall and with this book. Uh, on the one hand, it sounds like you had like many, many people that I know and have spoken to, uh, queer women who I know and have spoken to, a, a very kind of personal relationship with this text. On the other hand, um, you're very kind of critical of Hall. Um, is that plus the fact that this book maintains its kind of uh, relevance or power 
uh, for so many people today. Are those the reasons why you felt sort of compelled to take on this critical edition project? Yes, so I think The Well of Loneliness is a book that hasn't gone away for a hundred years and it won't go away. So for better or worse, it has a certain status within queer and trans culture. And rather than deny that that is the case or hope that it's going to go away, I think we just need to tackle the book for, and take it for what it is and make explicit all the really problematic aspects of it, while also acknowledging that it did serve a purpose and it did a lot of, um, it had a positive impact for some people as well. And it has certainly shaped LGBTQ history, the history of censorship and so on. So I'm excited to do the uh, scholarly critical edition together with Hannah Roach, um, not because it's going to consolidate um, the status of the book as a classic, although it will do that, but because I think a scholarly critical edition with a proper introduction and a scholarly apparatus and footnotes allows you to really situate the book and make visible all the different political dimensions that might otherwise go unnoticed. So that's why I'm excited that it's an opportunity to shape the book for a new generation of readers and to treat it as a deeply fraught and limited text that nevertheless has had a lasting and significant impact. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, I think when it comes to Radcliffe Hall as a person, I've now spent 20 years of my life <laughs> thinking about Radcliffe Hall and reading their work and spending you know, months of my life in the archives, looking through the papers. And I've really gone beyond the point where I'm trying to defend or justify some of the stuff that Hall did. Obviously, I'm doing a bad gaze episode on Record Falls, so I'm no longer trying to defend their reputation. Mm -hmm. As I said, I think some of the stuff that Hall did was incredibly brave and important. Uh, in other ways, she was an absolutely awful, horrible person, and there's no way that we can or should try to excuse that. But I guess I'm really interested in the reasons why Hall did what she did and wrote what they wrote, and I'm interested in looking at the the intellectual and political motivations behind some, of, the, behind some of, of her choices. And what I find really interesting, as I said earlier, is that Hall is often at her worst when she's trying to be a good gay, when she's trying to really speak to what she thinks is mainstream society. That is when she often gets it really wrong and when she draws mm. on the more limiting, more conservative models of gender and sexuality. But if we go beyond that, if we go beyond the well of loneliness, or if we look deeper into that text and unearth some of the complexities of that text, we can also see a person who was really playing around with different ideas about gender and sexuality, who had access to a, a wide range of different approaches. And I think sometimes that is what I find most compelling about Hall's work, is um, looking at a person who's really trying to make sense of gender and sexuality, who doesn't really know what the right or best approach is, who's testing out different ideas, and who sometimes gets it really, really wrong. And for me, approaching Hall as a bad gay can be a really generative and productive framework to make that visible. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to kind of center um, the sort of many facets of bad, um, the way in which he's um, bad on race, uh, the way in which she's bad on class, the way in which the publication of this book is dangerous to people that she's friends with or people that she's close to, the way in which she's bad to herself, the way in which she's bad to her lovers, um, the way in which trying to be good often makes you worse. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you found uh, that way of thinking uh, interesting and, and productive in your way of uh, thinking about Hall. I certainly have. Um, Absolutely. 
And, and I mean, there's something where I can relate to her in the sense that she herself sets up this model of the noble, self-sacrificing invert who's honorable and respectable. And then she again and again fails to live up to this idea that she herself has created. And there's something quite tragic and quite ridiculous in that, but also something that I feel like I can relate to. <laughs> Everything about queer life is at some point tragic or ridiculous or both. So exactly. I think that's, I think that's been the major conclusion of mine from doing this show. Um, so thank you so very much for, for joining us, Yana. If people want to uh, stay in touch with you or keep following your work, which I really recommend, how would they do that? So I'm on Twitter at Dr. Jana Funke. So that's probably the best way. And it links to my uh, website at the university and my various research projects that I'm involved in. So that's probably the best way. And you can email me and DM me on Twitter. So I would love to hear from people. I mean, one of the joys of working on Hall is that so many people have read The Will of Loneliness and there's so many hilarious stories about people's encounters with their texts. So I would love to hear those stories as well. And also critical perspectives, challenging perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, so please do that uh, and please do follow Yana I recommend her Twitter presence highly uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things you can follow the show on Twitter at Bad Gaze Pod um, you can of course uh, visit our website badgazepod.com to find our very beautiful t-shirts an episode archive and a link to our Patreon which supports the show and uh, special episode projects like this one and uh Thank you so very much for listening, and we'll have an announcement coming very soon after you hear this about our fourth season, which will be out this fall.